low Mickey show. Clash momentarily for clash solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. And if you don't know, if I if you haven't checked out the show before and you haven't heard us say this over and over, November is, um, it's like 10 months away. And why does November matter? I am not letting this go. November are the elections, the midterms. And if you recall, a man named George W. Bush basically stole an election in 2000. And, and Al Gore didn't really fight back in the way that I think so many Democrats and progressives thought he could have and would have won. Al Gore lost his home state. Al Gore lost an election many people thought he would win. And the Democrats did very little to try to win back, even though they probably had the ability to do so. And then four years later, John Kerry. John Kerry was swift boated by a guy who was a cheerleader who was not an actual like military officer. Uh, John Kerry, of course, was a veteran of Vietnam. He testified against Vietnam, uh, you know, 50 years ago at this point. And somehow they manipulated the media into thinking that John Kerry was a liar and he wasn't a military hero because they knew at that time the Republicans needed to appear strong, and John Kerry couldn't appear stronger than George W. Bush. And once again, the Democrats lost by a narrow, narrow margin in Ohio. That was it. It was Ohio, Ohio, Ohio. And that led to their very thoughtful, strategic goal of taking over the entire country. The Koch brothers, of course, were on top of this, you know, a decade and a half before George W. Bush got elected. But once George W. Bush got elected, even if it was by the tiniest of margins, they did everything they could by stacking the courts, taking over legislatures, and really sealing the deal for at least a decade. Except there was one thing. The Bushes did not get along with the far right. And the far right was taking advantage of the fact that the, the grounds had been laid by the Koch brother infrastructure and the Bushes being in office, the Bush being in office, meaning George W. Bush. And so they saw it as an opportunity. George W. Bush, let's just remind everybody, pre-Ellen, uh, you know, f- baseball games and pre-Michelle Obama embrace, George W. Bush was the least popular president of all time, so much so that Junior Senator Barack Obama could run for office as the anti-war candidate, the anti-Iraq war candidate in a primary against institutional figure Hillary Clinton. Okay? So this is a situation in which you had the least popular president of all time, George W. Bush, create an opening for Democrats to come in and win. And just in the nick of time, they chose 
John McCain, who was sort of sidelined because he was independent. He was not lockstep with the Republican Party at all times. And so they said, oh, he's earned because it's about ranks in the Republican Party. Okay, we will put John McCain as, as our nominee because it's likely, based on historic trends, that we're going to lose. We might as well give him his moment. Okay? So they brought in John McCain, and then the economy collapses. And John McCain picks Sarah Palin. Perfect storm. And Barack Obama, of course, charismatic, and at that point had won the primary against Hillary Clinton on an anti-war message. He won the election. And we thought, all right, we'll get through this. We get through the economy. We will, we will get through this. And of course, we know where it went from there. Barack Obama, of course, not only didn't just bail out Wall Street, but he pulled funds from the Democratic Party, and there was a shellacking. And the shellacking is the moment I want to come to. The shellacking were the midterm elections. Historically, but really not historically in the last like 60, 70 years, it's more historically since 1992, have the midterms been catastrophic. And I say that because the Democrats held the House for 30 years prior to Bill Clinton winning the presidency. So now we're expected in less than 11 short months to lose the House and the Senate because of historic trends. That's the excuse, historic trends. Well, historic trends prior to Bill Clinton winning the White House were that the Democrats just had the House at all times. They never lost it. They just had it. And sometimes they had the Senate. But more often than not, the Democrats were in power because the Democrats were there for working people. But somehow we are a more progressive, diverse country than ever. And we have no middle class left. And somehow the Democrats aren't able to keep their majority based on the principles that they fight for. So what I am here to share with you all today is we cannot rest on the Democrats. Yes, they're infuriating. And yes, the establishment, you know, their leadership is, 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 is completely asleep at the wheel and beholden to Capitol and Wall Street and the powers that be and their donors. But it doesn't mean that we need to rely on them. In 2017, as you guys know, I was on the Unity Reform Commission, and we spent two years traveling around the country, meeting with different party leaders, trying to figure out how to fix the Democratic Party. We issued a report. We got it voted on by the entire DNC. It won, and they did not institute any of our recommendations. And those recommendations primarily were, hey, maybe you should take your money and pull them away from five consultants and put them into state parties and build a pipeline of candidates and, and uh, you know, folks who can help out these campaigns, because that's what the Republicans have been doing for 40 years. We've lost unions. They're nowhere near what they used to be in 1978 uh, since we banned them from the party. So now we have to do something more. And so what I'm saying to you, and I will continue to say, and this is the theme of our show, is the Proud Boys are running, the QAnon supporters are running, the Boogaloo Boys are running at the local level. This is much, much more than the Koch brothers and the Bush family dynasty. This is about the far right taking over. And if the establishment Democrats can't even get BBB passed when they have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, then it's time for us all to step up. If you've ever thought about running for local office, this is your time. Run for city council, town council, school board, state senate, assembly. It's much more achievable than the bigger you know, Congress is great. 
but Congress is stalled. If you want to run for Congress, please do so. But it's not just about bad Democrats anymore. It's about actually challenging these far right members because the Democrats are not present. They are not present in 50 states in this country. They don't have operational Democratic parties recruiting candidates and training them. So we ask you to run. And we are going to do whatever we can on our show and other shows to help inform you on how to run. We don't deserve to be going into the dark ages, but we can't sit here and say we do not have the power to do something. So that is the theme of this year. And very excited because today uh, we have an incredible show. I think you all know that we started Solidarity Wednesdays. Uh, Solidarity Wednesdays are when we have our dear friend Ben Dixon on, who is the host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. I appear on his show at at uh, early in the morning, 8 a.m. every morning, Eastern, Eastern, on his show on YouTube and other platforms. And then he comes on at our show on Wednesday evenings when we go live at 8 Eastern. So he will be on our show in the next half. But first up, we have Amelia Peng. She is the author of Made in China, A Prisoner, An SOS Letter, and The Hidden Cost of America's, uh, America's Cheap Goods. And then for the panel today, we have Arun Chowdhury, who is the host of the committee program. And of course, just he's worked in administrations, political, you know, presidential administrations, and he is doing overseas work, uh, movement work as well. So he has his ear on the ground as to what's happening with the fascist overseas who are definitely making the rounds. We're going to have a great conversation with him in the second hour, but uh, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back with Amelia Ping. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. We are so honored to have Amelia Peng on. She is the author of Made in China, A Prisoner, An SOS Letter, and The Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. She's an award-winning investigative journalist of Uyghur and Chinese descent. Her work has been published in The New Republic, Mother Jones, and The New York Times, Sunday Review, among many other platforms. Amelia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I, I want to kind of take a step back and just get to um, just what's been happening with, with the Chinese government and the Uyghur population. I think there's been a lot of misinformation, probably uh, strategically so, put out their propaganda, I would even say, um, to confuse folks. But, but you know, this is your dissent. I, I, I ask you, somebody from the, the community, to, to explain, like, what's been going on and, and why is it not more well-known in the States? Um, well, the rise of the concentration camps that are detaining Uyghurs in China today um, is closely tied with China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a trillion dollar economic development strategy. It's this infrastructure project that connects China to the Middle East, connects China to Europe and West Asia. It's extremely, um, China has put a lot of investments in this um, project and it's kind of too big to fail. And the where the Uyghurs live, the Uyghur region, also known as Xinjiang, um, that is in Western Western China and Central Asia. So the Belt and Road, a key part of the Belt and Road goes through that area. Um, so based on the history of 
the Chinese government's relationship with the Uyghurs, which hasn't been a good one because Uyghurs and other Turkic people in China have, have are basically living as second-class citizens. It's hard for them to get jobs. Um, you know, if they go to a hotel and try to book a hotel, they might get turned away um, because they're not Han Chinese. These are things that um, are a common experience for Uyghurs in China. Um, so the Chinese government is afraid of our uprising in the region, and that's there. There hasn't been any large-scale uprisings that could actually disrupt the Belt and Road Initiative, but because of that fear, um, the Chinese government started rounding up um, uh, millions of Uyghurs into camps um, since uh, since 2016, 2017, which is really when you saw investments in the Belt and Road Initiative ramp up. Um, okay, so, so, so let's just be very clear. So the, the Uyghur population, they overlap with this the, the location of this initiative, like where they're expanding their investments. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, a turning point for in terms of the spike of the camps happened in 2017 when mm -hmm. China invested $66 billion in the infrastructure of that region for the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and what does the Belt and Road Initiative do? Is it, what is their like goal? Is it natural resources? Um, it's building these China-funded bridges uh, like 5G networks and other major infrastructure projects. Uh, that region serves as a major transportation hub for the Belt and Road Initiative. So mm -hmm. it's a huge logistical importance to China. And when you say, okay, so the infrastructure is for trade purposes. So if there are natural resource expo exploration in other areas, these like it's to, this is a region of transport solely. Uh, yes, it's, it's of huge logistical importance. Um, so that's why, you know, if we have companies um, pulling out of that region, uh, a region that China has made a lot of investment into setting up as an economic um, hub, then that could lead to some meaningful changes in terms of closing the camps. Hmm. Okay, so let's rewind just a little bit so we understand how these camps operate. Um, when did they? When did the Chinese government start to crack down? Was it prior to this investment? Uh, what were there protests? Like, how did this all originate? Um, there were some small-scale protests. Um, in a few years ago, uh, there was a, a knife um, attack at one of the popular train stations that led to one of the crackdowns. Mm -hmm. um, but there hasn't been any evidence that there would be any large-scale protests that could disrupt um, their economic investments. So this is just all to make sure there's like absolutely no, like why, why the weaker population? I mean, if there's no protests, and they can go about business and continue to invest in infrastructure. Why are they creating camps? Is is there some other sort of nationalistic goal? Yes. Well, the goal is to have all populations in the in China, um, whether you're Tibetan, whether you're Uyghur, whether you're Kazakh, um, identify um, with identify closely with the Chinese government, um, which means having a uniform identity and. Mm -hmm cutting ties with your own culture and your heritage, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And how successful has that been? Um, by through coercion, it has unfortunately been very successful. I mean, my own family tells that story. Um, my grandmother was half Uyghur. She grew up in mm -hmm. um, that home, that part of the homeland and knew the culture, knew the language. But within uh, just one generation, that was mostly lost. Um, my family and my cousins to this day cannot speak the Uyghur language. Wow. Um, we just don't have a connection with that part of our heritage. And how, long, how large is the population, the Uyghur population in particular? 
um, the latest, I don't have the latest numbers, but there's currently at least 1 million of Uyghurs in camps. So in, in terms of these camps, um, what are the circumstances? Well, you have to take a step back and look at the history of these camps. They, they've existed um, since the start of the Chinese Communist Party in the 40s. Um, initially, they were based off of Soviet gulags. The intent for these camps was to target political dissidents, class enemies, um, and these people were kept alive to serve as a source of free labor uh, for mm -hmm. the Chinese economy. Um, and with each expansion um, of economic growth, the, there's been an expansion of camps. Uh, it used to be that these camps primarily targeted political dissidents, rights defenders. Um, a lot of the student protesters from the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests ended up in these camps um, hmm. doing free labor um, for the global economy. And in recent years, we're seeing the latest iteration of these camps, the darkest iteration of these camps, which are the ones targeting Uyghurs and other Turkic people. Uh, and the intent behind these camps is really to destroy an entire ethnic group. That's that's the sole intention, is just to destroy them entirely. Uh, based on the policies that we're seeing, uh, yes. And in what type of um, international response has there been? You're starting to see some strong international response. Uh, the U.S. government recently passed the uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which would ban all goods from the Uyghur region um, from being imported into the U.S. And that's a meaningful, that's a pretty meaningful act to sign into law because, um, again, any kind of, any, any way that we could hurt the financial investment that a Chinese government has made in the region really sends a strong message to convince them to lessen the camps, uh, lessen their hold on the camps. Um, but it remains to be seen how well that can be enforced. Um, there's a lot that our corporations can do. Um, they can do better to track whether their um, products are being made in these camps. Um, and the way that corporate audits are currently done are pretty mm -hmm. weak in terms of detecting forced labor. Okay, we're going to get to your your story in a second because it's shocking. Um, but what do, what do you mean by that in terms of like the auditing of the supply chain auditing, or is it is it much more than that? Yes, uh, during my research for this book, I was shocked to find that um, the way that audits are designed, um, they're not really designed to detect forced labor at that factory. They're not designed to detect if that factory has a secret uh, subcontracting relationship with nearby prison camps. Um, there's a lot that corporations can do to find out this information, um, but they're not looking because nobody is really asking them to. Consumers are not demanding them to. It's not hurting their bottom line to continue sourcing from these types of forced labor facilities. Wait, hang on, just, just to be clear. So so, so a, a company, say like Apple, I'll just say Apple, right? So Apple hires um, so-and-so company to, uh, to, to produce its product, to assemble its product. I'm just making this up. There's no truth. This is just my you know, example, the, the company is in charge of assembling. It might have a subcontract, some subcontractor that Apple is not aware of that might be forced labor. Is, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, it's so funny you mentioned Apple because I actually went to China in early 2019 to visit these camps um, and follow the trucks that left these facilities to see who, which exporters they were working with. And they were working with an official Apple supplier. The address came up on Apple's official supply chain list. And when I reached out to Apple to ask what they were doing to um, discourage this factory from 
having a relationship with the forced labor facility, um, what kind of audits they conducted to um, detect this time, this kind of information. Um, they, they basically refused to give me any information. And to this day, the supplier remains uh, one of their suppliers. Interesting. So what companies are working in this region that you're aware of? Well, so many. Um, a great resource is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, in early 2020, they released a pretty damning report that found 82 major global brands sourcing from factories that are known to be using Uyghur forced labor. Um, and although this report came out a while ago in March 2020, um, not a whole lot has changed. Um, Nike, for example, continues to use that supplier, even though uh, there is hard evidence that that factory built a re-education night school for Uyghurs um, into that facility. Um, we, Nike said that they've conducted audits and they they don't believe there are any Uyghurs there anymore, um, but they've released no information about what kind of an audit they, co they conducted to confirm uh, there's no forced labor there. And I, I think that's something that needs to change. Oh my goodness. So, you know, the story that you tell, and this is heartbreaking. Um, in your book, you mentioned in, in 2012, an Oregon mother named Julie Keith opened up a package of Halloween decorations, and it basically changed her life. Um, can you explain what happened? Right. The book opens up in October 2012 when this ordinary suburban mom is looking for Halloween decorations for her kid's party. Um, as she goes through her storage shed, looking at all the uh, decorations she's collected over the years, she comes across this unopened package of styrofoam gravestones that someone had gifted to her two years ago. Um, it was one of those impulse purchases that someone had gotten from Kmart for no other reason other than the fact that it was really, really cheap. It was on clearance sale. Um, but nobody had a need for it. It sat in storage for two years before she um, remembered to open it. And she was shocked to find an SOS letter had been waiting for the whole time. It was written by the forced laborer in China who had made and packaged this very product in a very gruesome labor camp. The letter talked about how he was tortured, he was starved, he had to, he and the other forced laborers had to work 15 hours a day, um, seven days a week, and they were paid less than $2 a month for all of this work. Um, so my book aims to explore who are these types of forced laborers that landed this camp? Who was the author of this SOS letter? What were their experiences in the camps? What kind of products they manufactured? Um, and more importantly, what are the loopholes in the way that our corporations try to make sure that they're doing sustainable uh, sourcing? What are the loopholes that make it so easy to, for products manufactured in a gruesome labor camp to end up selling at a store like a Kmart in Portland, Oregon? So, so what are some of these loopholes? How are they able to get away with this? I mean, I remember years ago, I was, I was, in, I mean, literally 25 years ago, I was in college and I, I was in some political science class. It was like a 201 level or something. And, um, this, this lawyer came in and spoke to us and he was the lawyer in the case against, you might recall, Kathy Lee Gifford had, um, she had like a, a workout line or clothing line for Kmart, I believe if I'm correct. And she had been caught uh, saying her goods were made in the USA, but it was really in territories. And when the loophole there was that, well, yes, it was made made in the USA, but the territories did not have to uh, follow the same standards that you have to in the United States, which of course are becoming worse and worse over the years. And this lawyer had um, effectively represented the workers you know, 25 years ago, and at this point, maybe it was 30 years ago, because he spoke to us 25 years ago. And 
I remember my entire worldview being shifted as a, you know, 19-year-old college student thinking this could happen. Like what? There's a loophole. You have to you go to the territories. You can get away with this. But this seems much darker and um, and more complicated. And it seems like the industry has become much more sophisticated. So, so what loopholes did you find? Well, historically, audits were mostly factory audits were mostly designed to protect the corporation rather than the worker. Um, so when you have bad press, when the company receives bad press, like, hey, this factory is known to be using forced labor and they're in your supply chain, they can say, hey, we conducted an audit. It was an independent audit. We had a third party audit. It was a great audit. But and it confirmed that there's no forced labor in the supply chain and this information is wrong. Um, it, it kind of protects the corporation, but rarely do these audits actually um, look into the things that you would need to look at to detect forced labor. For example, a standard audit um, that costs a couple hundred dollars might, it's, it's usually a pretty cursory one that would only look for things like the cleanliness of the factory, um, mm. how well the equipment is made, quality of the merchandise. It can't really detect something as complex as forced labor, especially if it's hidden through subcontractors. Mm. Uh, there's more comprehensive comprehensive and expensive audits called social compliance audits. They, they do take a deeper look at the wage documents and the factory's working conditions to make sure um, they really, they're paying their, their workers well and they're really subcontracting to where they're saying they're subcontracting to. Um, but even social compliance auditors have told me it's, it's really, really hard and maybe impossible for them to detect um, some of these more secret subcontracts to prison camps. It's, they know that it's ha happening, but they can't really prove it based on what they're required to look for in the audits. Um, so audits are often pretty limited in scope. Uh, but if we change, if companies start changing one or two things about what they look for in the audits, like let's say just saying that you write in the contract that you may send someone to follow the trucks that leave your facility to see if you're working with any prison camps nearby. Um, that can send a very strong message to the Chinese su suppliers saying, hey, they're taking this issue seriously. Um, we're not going to work with prisons uh, for this reason. Um, and that could have a meaningful effect in terms of making the forced labor system less lucrative for the Chinese government. Um, but since no, uh, none of the Western brands that are sourcing from China are willing to do this, uh, then it continues to be a hidden and very lucrative system. Okay, so, so the part that I don't really understand is, um, okay, so the audit is done by, it, it's U.S. audits over U.S. companies, right? Right. Okay, and then um, they subcontract to what I would assume is Chinese-based com companies. Well, a lot of the suppliers um, have subcontractors to other other factories. So, so say like Apple has um, a contract with the suppliers who are based in China. Is that that's how it works? Yeah. Okay, and then because they're Chinese companies, they can you don't necessarily have to audit their finances as U.S. government. It's, it becomes more complicated. Um, but then, but on top of it, like the workers camps, if they're, if, if these, if these contractors are subcontracting to workers camps and the workers camps are being operated by the Chinese government, this is essentially, you're, 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 you're paying the Chinese government for free labor. And I mean, is the Chinese government making money off of this labor force that they're trying to essentially, you know, keep out of the keep 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 out of protest or whatever their goal is yes yes they're absolutely making money these people are paid significantly less than the local minimum wage usually if they're paid at all they're they're a very lucrative source of free labor for the chinese government mm -hmm. does the chinese government need it 
No, but if they're going to be silencing and arresting these people anyway, they, they're, from their point of view, they might as well make them work. So all kinds of detention centers, whether it's an official prison wherein somebody has received the sentence um, or a, even a drug detox center or a pretrial detention center. There's so many different types of detention centers in China. They all, they, they all contain manufacturing facilities and they all have relationships with uh, a lot of exporters. So in terms of um, the oversight from the U.S. government and, and this is, this is, we're talking about the IRS is doing the audits. Or is it others that are doing the audits? Um, actually, it's uh, it's other it's auditing companies that okay. do the audits. Um, so they could be based in Hong Kong, but they probably they, they do do ter- uh, quality audits um, if you uh, pay for certain kinds of audits to be done. Uh, so the, the company has to decide whether or not to do it. It's not some right. sort of like okay, got it, got it. Yes. Um, right now, in terms of of crackdown and pushback other than the UN, what is the US is, is I mean, there's China has become a significant, uh, I don't know if adversary is the right word, um, but at least under the Trump administration, they were adversaries. But now under the, the Biden administration, he's obviously uh, called out China extensively. But what's to be done? Is there a real, I mean, Nancy Pelosi has throughout the last 30 years been very, you know, thoughtful and, and she's not perfect, but thoughtful about the human rights situation in China, does that mean that there's something that's going to happen? I think under the Biden administration, actually a lot got done. Um, they they mm-hmm. passed the Beaker Forced Labor Prevention Act, which was, a really good, which was a really big deal. It bans all products that are likely made by forced labor from that region, a region mm-hmm. with very high risk of forced labor from coming into the U.S., um, that was a meaningful piece of legislation. But I think it's not enough to do that because enforcement is hard. We still, we're, what's lacking is corporate accountability. Um, a lot of companies like Nike, for example, on their website, they say they don't directly source their cotton or raw materials. Um, so it's essentially a saying because they don't know where their cotton comes from. Uh, it could be coming from uh, Xinjiang, a region with a very high risk of forced labor. Um, but they're not tracking it, and nobody is really making them track it. And so what's next? What, 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 what could be done? I think in addition to all of the policy changes that are happening, uh, we also need consumers to step up and reach, look into your favorite brands that you enjoy shopping from. Mm-hmm. Uh, my book, Made in China, is, is about ultimately about the actionable, small actionable steps that the average consumer can take to move the needle and push our favorite brands to uh, do better um, in the in terms of deterring our factories from using forced labor. Um, start by going to your favorite brand's website and see what kind of a statement they've made about the Uyghurs and about Xinjiang. See if they're willing to say they know where their raw materials are coming from and they're not using forced labor. A lot of companies aren't quite willing to reveal that, that level of detail, um, which um, I think is, is a part of the problem. You don't know where they're sourcing from. Um, you don't know what they're doing to make sure they're not using forced labor. And that means there's no accountability. Is, is, do you have a list of like a you know, dirty list of bad actors for, for consumers to at least be aware of? Um, I was just looking at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's mm-hmm. list of 82 companies that were found using Uyghur forced labor. Uh, this is based on a lot of hard evidence, including the Chinese media domestic Chinese media reports that documented the workers in these programs and showed them on TV. Um, So I would say that's a good resource for 
we'll put that in the, in the information. Amelia, fascinating, super interesting. And thank you so much for sharing so much um, about the situation with the weaker population and just how intertwined it is with our lives on a daily basis and you know what can be done. Um, check out Amelia's book. Uh, it is out right now. It's called Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. She, of course, is a reporter, and she's appeared in places like the New York Times and uh, you know, so many other places like the New Republic and Mother Jones. Thank you so much for joining us. Go check out her book. As it says, well-researched and it what, we'll go back, let's put that quote back up there so you can read it. <laughs> Sorry, David. Well-researched and reported a uh, book that reads like a detective story. That's my favorite, detective stories. So great job. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, for, for joining us today. Take care. All right. We will be right back after this short break. And welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am here live in Puerto Rico, San Juan. Uh, you guys all know that I'm doing this documentary here, and it is it is so lovely. Uh, and I I'm going to call this the calm before the storm because we're about to walk into a crazy year. I want to mentally prepare everybody for what is going to happen if we don't. It's like all hands on deck. It's all hands on deck. We have got a situation in which the Democrats. Oh, you know, they know exactly what the problem is. I mean, that I think is what's different now. We know. Before Donald Trump got elected, it was like, oh, our strategy's better. But now everybody knows their strategy's not better, and they're barely doing anything, and they're not flexing their muscles, and Joe Manchin is the president, and yada, 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 yada. But, like, they can't blame the left because they're not actually operationalizing. They're not out there recruiting candidates at the local level. They're not fighting the Koch brothers. They're just like, left people are bad. That's not the case. We know working people have suffered more during COVID, have suffered more in the last 15 years. And we have a shrinking middle class. And I think we're at the stage now where we just cannot rely on someone to save us. We just have to take them on. We have to take the Koch brothers head on. We have to fight locally. But when the Democratic Party the big D's don't do their job. Don't put money into recruiting candidates and training candidates. Sit there and say, well, who's going to do it? So I am very proud. I am a part of Matriarch Organization. Matriarch recruits working class women who are interested, thinking about, are in office, are running. 2022 is a huge year. So if you know of a working class woman who is interested in running for office, has thought about it, wants to entertain it, is running right now or is actually in office, we are doing a training and it is a different type of training. Uh, it is a training specifically geared towards women who are working class. And that is because 
there are more obstacles. Women already face more obstacles than men do. Sorry to break that to you guys. But they also, if they're working class and progressive, they face major institutional barriers. They're told, oh, hey, we're not even going to look at your campaign until you raise $250,000. Well, who has a bunch of rich people in their Rolodex to raise that money? You know, if you don't come from wealth and if you don't know wealth, it's harder to become quote unquote viable. And so we at Matriarch do not assess candidates based on their wealth or their access to wealth, but we support you because of who you are, what you represent, your connection to the community, and how you're going to fight. We don't care if you're from a Democrat plus 15 district running against a bad Democrat, or if you're running in a Republican district that's working class. We believe that the entire country is on the table. We have to fight in every district. We have to fight at the local level because that's what the Republicans do. That's what the far right does. And so if you're interested in running, you know, here's the spoiler. You don't have to raise $2 million. If you're running for, for, for school board in most of this country or for city council or town council in most of this country, you don't have to raise as much money. And we will help you understand how to get there sooner, how to get the big endorsement sooner, sooner, how to knock on doors, how to create a budget, who to hire, how to become the best candidate you can be. And spoiler alert, like the candidates have to be the candidates. So you need your team to do their thing and the candidates need to do their thing. So on January 29th, we are doing a free training, free. That doesn't happen. You don't have to get on a flight. You don't have to get a hotel room. You don't have to take take off work because it's Saturday unless you work on Saturdays. So we hope you can make it. It's a full day event. Some of the best people in the industry are going to be teaching you guys, sharing their stories, sharing their secrets about how to run an effective campaign. And if you're running already or if you're in office, bring your senior staff because they might learn some stuff too. This is not just geared to candidates. It's geared towards staff members as well. This is free. Go sign up. Go to matriarchpack.com. We have the link in the bio. Click on the training program. Put in your name. This is going to change the space. This is our first of the year and is a huge one. We have names like Jane McAlevey is going to teach us how to organize. What? We have Corey Bush's former campaign manager. Corey Bush is, of course, uh, one of the founding members of Matriarch and got elected uh, after running multiple times and learning the lessons and really not giving up. Uh, there's other surprise guests. You're going to learn what you know, how to create your narrative, how to build coalitions, how to fundraise when you come from a working class background, how to uh, you know run for office while holding work while having kids, while being in a pandemic. You know, other trainings don't do that. They say, open up your phone and see if you can raise $500,000 or $250,000. Well, guess what? Spoiler alert, you're not going to be able to do it unless you have that money. We will give you the tricks. You can be competitive without playing their game. We have our own game, and we're going to teach you how to do it. So join matriarchpack.com. It is a free training. Uh, very excited. We have a lot of great partners and folks who have committed to making sure that this training is free for as many working class women as possible. And we are inclusionary. So all women, and of course your staff members as well, go check it out at matriarchpack.com. We will be right back after this tiny, tiny, tiny little break for Solidarity Wednesdays with Benjamin Dixon, right after a brief break.
Hello and welcome back to the Nomi He Show. It is Wednesday, which means it's Solidarity Wednesday. This is a new thing we're doing in 2022 because this is the moment we really need to exercise our solidarity. The right does it. They organize. They get hyper-local. They've been reading all the organizing principles of the left and like, oh, gee, we can do that too. And then we can make the left eat each other alive. <laughs> We're not going to play in that because the stakes are too high. The stakes are incredibly high right now. And we're just going to keep reiterating that over and over again. No inner party fight, inner leftist fight is worth what's going on right now. We have to focus our energy. And our dear friend, Benjamin Dixon, we have created a partnership with Ben. There he is. Uh, he hosts the Benjamin Dixon Show. I was on a show today at 8 a.m. Eastern. Yes, you were. And yes, you're you were. On Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for getting up so early and, and for me all. staying up so late because, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad now. So I'm, I'm asleep by 8 p.m. usually. I'm like in both lands right now. Like my age has has definitely, I remember when I was really young, my parents were like, when you get older, you're going to wake up early. And as soon mm -hmm. as the sun comes up, it's through that's my right. windows. And I'm like, that's yep. it. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> I'm up at 4 35 o'clock every morning now. So it's, it's out of okay. control. You yeah. beat me by a lot. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, okay, Ben, I'm so excited that we're doing this. This is our second week on our show and we were on your show today. And it was almost like we had no time to discuss you know, the most important matters of the world. But luckily, we're doing this every week, twice a week. Right. That's right. Um, but I do, I want to lean into some of the stuff that we started off. We, we were talking about labor on your show today. And if you haven't checked it out, please go check out the Benjamin Dixon show. You can see we were talking about what's going on with Starbucks workers right now. And of course, the Amazon workers trying to get in Bessemer. But we also hinted on what the right has done so right. well. That's right. They have been experimenting, and it's not even an experiment, because they have the capital, because they have have the uh, the media. They're in, and of course, you know, many times they've had uh, folks in power, they're supporting them. They have laid the bricks over the last 40 years for where we are today. And I say this on the show a lot, but I want to reiterate it. You know, three weeks ago, the New York Times printed a story saying, the Proud Boys, the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys who were in Charlottesville, the Proud Boys who are like hitting people on the Upper East Side and, and mm. think this is a game. Gavin McGinnis, who is an, you know, he, 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 he's the founder of the Proud Boys. I've debated him before. He thinks misogyny is cool. He mm. thinks racism is cool. Yeah. Yeah. These guys and the QAnon supporters and the Boogaloo boys, hard to tell the difference between all these folks, they're running for school boards and town councils. Meanwhile, the Democrats who, you know, spoiler alert, still haven't decided to put their money, more money than ever they've ever raised into That's a right. local party. They're not recruiting candidates. They're not recruiting consultants. So we're in a situation now where they're taking over the map and there is no defense. Like, we're at war, but are you really at war? Like, there's no war if there's not another side fighting. That's right. That's right. In a war, you have to have two sides. You have to have two belligerents. And right now, it's only the conservative movement that's actually organized in a meaningful fashion. Uh, they're not only organized on the national level, but like you pointed out, they're localized on the, on the state level and the local level. But they're also organizing on the global level. I mean, you mentioned that they have the resources. They do. They have the capital. They have the capital sufficient enough to make any cornball, untalented hack 
famous and give them a platform because they need people out there constantly pushing their lies and their propaganda so that they can maintain their type of solidarity. Their type of solidarity is maintained by how much propaganda they can spend, how much money they can spend on that propaganda and how many people will believe their lies. Do you have a sense of like, I mean, you live in Georgia. I, you know, I grew up in Western New York, which is Trump country. Uh, mm. Notably, the town just close to where I grew up is was a few years ago labeled the most racist town in America. Go oh, to wow. New York, not my town. I'll be fair, <laughs> but you know, it's definitely uh, their claim to fame. Uh, and then Arizona, I've spent a lot of time in. And so, you know, when you get outside of you've lived in New York, you know, when you get outside of New York and L.A. and Chicago, even and and you get outside of D.C. and in Miami, you, you start to see like it is more there than people are aware of. And mm. I, you know, the Republicans tap into this and they say like, well, Nancy Pelosi is an East coast liberal. And, you know, and they, and when you watch the view, the liberals are all Hollywood liberals. They're not like, you know, progressive working class people or, or organizers. It's, it's, it's Hollywood actors mm. that are representing the left. And, and part of like my concern is there's, actually an, a misunderstanding of what the right is and how they're mm. organizing partly because you know we we haven't been investing in the rest of America and what's what's portrayed in the media is the the the, the coastal elites that it's not even coastal it's like the big city elites yeah. and so I mean do you feel like folks really you're there you you know you see it every day like do you feel like folks really get the texture of what's happening on the ground? You know, I, I don't think a lot of people, one, yes, I think they get it. I think mm -hmm. if you sit down with anybody for more than five minutes and they have an opportunity to actually have these kind of conversations, they see it. I mean, they see it in their paychecks. They see it in the lack of paychecks. They see it in the lack of housing opportunities. Mm -hmm. They see it in the lack of social safety nets. They see it in the complete abandonment of the American people in COVID-19. So, mm -hmm. um, and then on the local level, they do see, right, that there is a stark contrast between what is happening in their real day-to-day -day lives and what we see on television and who is mm -hmm. on the news, who's running the media, right? They're, they're, they're wealthy millionaires who are mm -hmm. running these millionaires, some of them billionaires, owning media corporations. And so the bit, the majority of those, the vast majority, and I don't care what anyone else says, like I even think MSNBC to that extent plays its own role in supporting this, this system. And that is the fight, Nomiki, like we, we keep talking about it, but the solidarity is so crucial because we're up against billionaires who have entire media uh, apparatuses that have the ability to point out what you just pointed out all day, every day. They're pointing out to people who understand that something is wrong. They see it, mm -hmm. they feel it, they, they, they feel it in their bodies, in their minds. But then when they look on the television, they don't see anybody who looks like them, anyone mm -hmm. who's struggling. They don't see anyone who's a working class. They don't see any, I mean, and so, yeah, it, it's something that's regularly exploited by the Republicans. Well said. Regularly exploited by, so this is a great pivot because um, we all know who Steve Bannon is. Steve Bannon was a senior advisor to the Trump uh, election, and, and he is no newbie to politics. He actually was a Hollywood producer, which is really important because – he understands markets. He was one of the mm -hmm. Seinfeld producers. He knows this industry very well. He knows the Republicans very well. He's also extremely charming, which is horrifying 
when you watch mm. him, you're like, it doesn't look like he's a charming guy. And then you see him and he's very, very good on his feet and charming. Um, mm. Steve Bannon, there was a documentary uh, that I've watched at this point, I think like six times because I want to study it. He, let me rewind. I was in 2016, I was at Sirius XM hosting a show on, on, on the progressive channel 127. It was a nightly show from nine o'clock PM to midnight. There were only a few people hosting shows that late. The other person down the hall for me on the conservative channel was Steve Bannon. Mm. I was a Bernie person. He was a Trump person. And it was sort of like weirdly comical at the time because it's like we both got what was happening in the country and like who was going to win? And I legitimately at that point before the election did not think that they would have won. That's right. Yeah. And and here we are, uh, Steve Bannon, I think he's extremely tied into the Trump world still yeah. uh, just because he was distanced does not mean that he's not part of it. Um, he went out in before the EU elections in 2018, I believe, uh, he went to Europe and he decided to bring leaders from all over the world together, including Representative Gosar from Arizona mm. and Viktor Orban, of course, from Hungary and folks uh, in the Brexit world and, you know, uh, leaders, you know, Modi in India and, and Duterte and, you know, and he listed all these folks and he thought, you know, this, we have to create a global strategy. Um, mm -hmm. That same year, he created a training camp, true story, in Italy, in a monastery That's to recruit right. more candidates to win the EU elections. But it was never, he lost elections, but it was never about that. It was about the ideas. And this is where I feel like the Democrats don't get it. They think, well, if we're not going to win, we're not going to invest. But the mm -hmm. Republicans are like, we don't care about winning. We care about investing. Because when we plant the seeds, it doesn't go away. That's right. That's right. Republicans are making a loan. They, they constantly, and put it like this, we are now on the receiving end of about of a 50-year 50, 50 strategy to roll back mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade, right? This didn't happen overnight. They've been planning this every day since the original decision uh, from the Supreme Court, and they invest money in it, and they have no problem taking five decades to get their victory. Um, this is the same thing that we're seeing now. We're seeing conservatives make investments in high schools, in, in colleges, in trying to capture the young generation because they know in order to win the future, they've got to win some young votes. They have to win That's the right. minds. They have to win the minds of these children before they're shaped by actual fact and truth and history. And experience too. I mean, That's right. they, they, they're, they're going to Gamer. I mean, Gamergate was sort of like the origins of how YouTube operates, right? The, the, the Gamer community was caught up in this misogynistic experiment. It was a horrible, horrible situation. And then much of the Gamer community, which was predominantly male, white male, young white male, moved into um other spaces youtube and twitch etc cetera, etc cetera. and it, it it really does dictate how a lot of the the left at least or younger um media the conversations are held um so bannon bannon is uh you know he has he's been under investigation he's been arrested he has had a lot of stuff thrown at him but the guy is this documentary was jarring because you know, on like the fourth time I watched it, I started zooming in on all the books he was reading. And I'd love to talk about this. Maybe next week we can go into this in a little bit more depth. Um, some of the books are like really effing weird, like like mm. spiritual and mm -hmm. 
like studying the icons of history and mythology and what mysticism, how mysticism works. And turns out, you know, there are podcasts that talk about how when he was in the military, he was studying transcendental meditation and he was trying to understand how like, and this is nothing new, by the way, it's not a Steve Bannon thing that, you know, going back to the early 1900s, you saw a lot of the the billionaires, the Henry Fords of the world being like, if you will, it will come. And they did this whole mind, you know, spiritual. I mean, there you go. You've, you've got him reading a book right there. Um, and he was quoting Lincoln there, who in that part of the documentary, where he was basically quoting uh, the moment where he needed to rise up. And and this is not new, though. I mean, we kind of have have made it very like data driven and taken mm. out the human component. But mm-hmm. you know, whether you're Steve Bannon or uh, the first president of Mexico who was a, who was into mysticism but was on the left, I mean, this is not new to politics. But he has really decided like he's going to capture it. Um, and we see this in the, in the, and of course I'll leave to you in a second, but like we see this now with the anti-vax movement. They're, they're really preying on a lot of spiritual folks. That's right. Um, at the risk of falling too deeply into that particular conversation, Steve Bannon, along with many Republicans have a firm conservatives, um, reactionaries, and they have a firm belief in, um, in a higher power that they believe Mm. should service them uh, by right of domination. They believe that by right of conquering Western civilization, conquering earth, that the higher power that they believe in must now acquiesce to them. And so, I mean, it's it's, it's a rabbit hole. I I don't necessarily uh, disagree with all of the mysticism parts because I've read some of the same books and I can understand the allure and I get it. But they're doing it on the side of fascism, uh, so mm-hmm. I need all the all the new age people who like get into that kind of stuff, and you might even mess with a couple of you know, you know, other substances. Please understand <laughs> that everyone who rubs you know the crystal stones, they're not sharing the same frequency with you folks. And Steve mm-hmm. Bannon's frequency is on pure bigotry and hatred. Uh, it's it's so interesting you say because like I, so I'm in Puerto Rico right now and we've been doing this documentary and it's a uh, big part of it you know it's it's colonization you're talking about indigenous community has been completely wiped out by the American you know 200 years ago Spaniards and then Americans and um and you, you know you go back and you look at some of these texts from like 1942 and the guy who was like Times Person of the Year was writing texts in Puerto Rico about, I mean, they they were experimenting on Puerto Rican people. And now you've got the Bitcoin people and the folks mm. who are taxed, and they're all part of this spiritual community. Yes. And they're here for yes. tax breaks. And and, and I, <laughs> yes. I just read an article. Oh, my God. I read an article. One of these Bitcoin bros who's a billionaire said, well, you know, I, I took magic mushrooms and it changed my life and I understood Bitcoin finally. And that is how... I became a Bitcoin billionaire and they quoted Peter Thiel, who, of course, is not a great guy. He was a libertarian. And Peter Thiel said, you know, he was all that guy, that Bitcoin billionaire was always very bright. Um, but then this guy says he's part of this Bitcoin Puerto Rican community where they, you know, do yoga and they med- meditate. And I am one of those people. And I'm like, no, 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 That's no, right. it's not about you, your get rich scheme. That's right. It's, Thank it's, you. They're using it as a tool, just like they used workers as a tool to That's break right. in. 
I've got bad news for them. It's completely impossible for them to achieve the level of ascension that they believe that they can seek after without sacrificing the ego. It's funny because their first step after taking a couple magic magic mushrooms or even the frog venom is, oh my God, empathy. They, the first thing that they come across on their journey of self-exploration hmm. is empathy. Um, a lot of them haven't even gotten that far, no matter how many drugs they use. So I'm not particularly worried about the spiritual aspect because I don't think they have it in them because right. they are the dominating force. They are the oppressors on the international stage. It's like the, the narrative of Pharaoh in the Bible. Um, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart and hmm. did not, you know, this is the same thing with them. They don't have the capacity to see the empathy that's necessary and the sacrifice of their personal ego to actually ascend. So mm. keep doing all the drugs you want, guys. Uh, until you stop being a dick, nothing's going to change for you. You might get oh, rich, but you're not going to get that spiritual ascension that you are doing so many drugs to reach. I'm so curious if it's really about spirituality. Hey, Ben, do you have like five more minutes? Can I bring um, in a run? Because I'd love to hear yeah. Ren's uh, thought on this because I know he's got I'm a lot of thoughts at your on disposal. Steve Bannon. All right. <laughs> okay. Arun Chowdhury is, of course, the host of the committee program. Uh, let's bring in Arun, because I feel like Arun got a lot of thoughts about Steve Bannon. What? Steve Bannon. Yeah, we're talking about the yeah. spirituality. He of came the right, right out of prison, and all of a sudden, he looked really good. But in that way that people look really good kind of right before they die when they have, what's the rich person disease from like that, a consumption or what, what was that when, you know? Was it a affluenza? <laughs> like they would say, you look really angelic before you died. And so this oh, is my yeah. thing. I was like, he looks good. But then I saw a picture recently and in that, in that, oh boy. The guy drinks like kombucha and like does, I watch this stuff. He's been on a diet, which means. No, I am the, I am the one, I, I get just to catch you up on this, Please, Ben. I am one who, th who th just thinks that Ben, that, 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 um, that Steve Bannon is, was kind of the one whispering to Trump in the way mm -hmm. that made Trump so effective in 2016. And that may be hard for him to replicate in a kind of real life situation because Bannon's the one who know who's just, he knows how to run to the left of yeah. the center, mm -hmm. you know, every yeah. time there's that opening, he does it. And so I, uh, you know, as much as we admire the monsters, I think he does a really good job at framing and has made and, had, and was that special spark. I, I feel like Bannon has moved on from Trump. I mean, can I dare mm. I say it? Like everyone else is like, oh, Trump's going to run again. He might, doesn't matter. Bannon's like, I don't care if he runs again or not. I am, I've got a first choice, second choice, third choice, but I also have an army that's running all over the world and fascism is going to rise up and there's no allied force that's going to save anyone. Mm. No, I, maybe? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I was going to yield the floor, but I, I feel that exact same thing, Nomi. Um, I really do believe that Trump is now expendable. They are starting to distance themselves enough because it was they need they need the anti-vax community to continue uh, with their coalition. And the, the minute he came out and said the vax works, well, I mean, they really put their their fangs out on them. How's it feel? So, so, so Ben, just so you know, um, Arun has been doing international work, even though he's an American. He's an American, guys. He's an American. Don't worry. <laughs> Whatever you heard. Don't worry. <laughs> this is where it starts, Naomi. Thank you. This is that yeah, my life is it. now. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's going to be mugs <laughs> and things and Bannon and oh, God. Hey, he's Arun, pleasure, of Europe. Pleasure being on a panel with you, my friend. Good to yeah, be Yeah, totally. So run like you know you you've been working in Europe you've been doing the anti-Bannon uh, crusade like what what what's your vibe right now I mean is is the movement working fast enough is Bannon still no the vibe's no. not great the vibe's oh, not great okay. I think I was mentioning last time like sort of new fronts open up all the time 
uh, in the war on fascism in Europe, Slovenia is now sort of on a knife's edge of becoming another illiberal mm. democracy within the EU. I mean, the kind of backwards progress that we see happening. I, I was just there speaking with folks and it, it's sort of shocking and scary what can happen. And the places where the center left and the left are fighting are places where they should win easily. Mm. And one could, you know, point towards the 2020 results as being that, right? You're like, yay. You know, mm. kind of looking in the tea leaves. That's the same when you look around Italy at places like Emilia Romagna, elections in places like Toscana, and sort of the slimming majorities for uh, traditionally center left and left parties. It's it's it, it looks like it will be. It looks like we're going into the Empire Strikes Back section uh, of the trilogy right wow. now from a European stance. And there's yeah. and what does that mean like on the ground? Because obviously elections run a little bit differently, but. Is there like a that a, means France is for sure an actual monarchist versus an actual fascist? And the one exciting weird thing that happened normally, you have like you know, a Bernie type, right? Melanchon, right. someone, some sort of exciting progressive, like pops in and does something relatively interesting. No, no, now the person who popped in was to the right of Le Pen, who was interesting for wow. a few weeks and they got rid of. Yeah, Zamor, who was a charming fellow. Mm. Uh, yeah, and uh, is part of this because the, the left, uh, center left has completely obliterated the left left uh, there's a bit of that but it's just people don't get along people won't play ball uh i want to give credit where credit's due and hidalgo who's the mayor of paris and was the candidate from the socialists who you know don't get too excited americans they are like the traditional very centrist sort of left uh, uh party but she uh said i would like to participate in a primary which is something that some bernie french organizers but out of bernie world had had started to organize she said i want to participate in that i think that if the greens the communists the socialists mm -hmm. if everybody the civic left which is a thing sort of in europe you have these people who are part of the center left but don't identify with any party but have civic mm -hmm. associations that they can be in if we all do a primary uh, and pledge to come together that that's a good job. Uh, the thing on the right, they don't have to do a spiritual primary because they have like a money primary, right? Mm -hmm. There's somebody who can throw enough money at something to make problems go away, even personal problems between people. It just takes yeah. some money. Okay, so so real quick, and, and, and Ben, like if you have any questions, please feel free to jump in. But like, I, I'm curious... Okay, so the right is rising in Eastern Europe, and you have Russia and Ukraine, and 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 all this shit happening right now um, over oil and pipelines. But fundamentally, and a hundred thousand troops on a border, you know, within a hundred kilometers of Kiev. It's really, I, I'm actually sort of you do. in Germany. I don't know why people aren't talking about it on the streets. Like that's a train ride from here. You know, how far? Uh, just across Poland. So you know, probably twelve hours. Wow. <laughs> so I mean, this this leads. Actually, let's let's talk about um, the tension in Ukraine right now. Ukrainians are welcoming 2022 by preparing for a possible Russian invasion, digging new trenches by hand in the frozen earth. Lined by minefields, the trenches already stretch for miles across eastern Ukraine. Crude defenses that have changed little since World War One. Maxim, a Ukrainian soldier, says he'll fight to the end. But of the talks, he adds, my opinion is wars have always been resolved through diplomacy. We expect that our leaders will solve these issues. Maria, a forward scout, didn't see her four-year-old son for Christmas and may not for many months to come. Hopefully, on the other side, they love their families just like we do and don't want to see bloodshed and death, she says. Russia has also moved in missile launchers and this huge clearing vehicle that can cut a path through forests for columns of tanks. 
On Sunday, Secretary of State Blinken said he doesn't expect any breakthroughs ahead of key talks between the U.S. and Russia. If Russia commits renewed aggression against uh, Ukraine, uh, I think it's a very fair prospect that NATO will reinforce its positions along its, its eastern flank. To de-escalate and convince Russia to pull back, the United States is willing to make concessions. U.S. officials say they're willing to discuss scaling back military exercises near Russia if Russia reciprocates with its military drills. Not deploying offensive missiles in Ukraine and broader missile control agreements across Europe. So um, this is, you know, it's 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 alarming. Uh and, and looping in with our previous conversation about just the far the the right rising up simultaneously. So when you have the right rising up and the center left or you know more establishment left that's been in control in, in many of the Western democracies and liberal democracies around the world, really weak right now and and holding the the far left, the worker left uh, down, are we in a place where, I mean, is this as alarming as it seems from the U.S. fundamentally in numbers? It's, it's or is more it alarming than anyone's even willing to admit. It's more alarming than anyone's even to admit because it is so messy and the absence of anything has led to vacuums uh, on both sides where like, I mean, you're talking about far right. We've allowed the far right to co-opt portions of the opposition. The far right is in charge on the other side. You know, it's... It, it's be, it's becoming almost sort of a serious situation, like in terms of looking for like moral outcomes, right? Like mm. it's like, ah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you don't mind, I want to ask you if you could connect the dots for people who are listening with the the far right, the global reactionary movement, and um, what's happening in Ukraine, um, because it it seems to me that there would be. Um, more of a direct connection with that pan-reactionary, that that global cabal. I hate to use that word, but it is. They're yeah, yeah, they're yeah. squatting up on a on a on a global level. How does this fit into that paradigm? Right. So, sort of the illiberal democracy, right? Which Orban brilliantly has sort of branded what he's doing in Hungary. But this sort of bubble of illiberal democracy inside of Europe finds itself in natural ally with Putinship, but. Uh, with Putinship, no, <laughs> whatever Putinship stands for, with Putin, right? It, yeah. it, it, it's like it, there's a natural ally there, but it's sort of one-sided friendship. Mm. You know, it's like you, you have a large regional power and a somewhat international power in Russia who looks for trouble and can support these things, but it, they don't actually hold that same ideology necessarily. They don't have ideology. Right. Like the reason that, that, that's why it's so hard to like mm. this Ukraine thing and why it's so unfortunate we're sending pistols to fight missiles, as you saw in the clip, it is because we it's because Putin is just basing this on. Is this going to cost my country more than I want to do this? Right. Like mm. I want to do this. I want the power. I, you know, I want to show what I can do. I'd like to conquer something. Nobody gets to conquer anything anymore. Mm. Maybe I'll get to conquer something. That's exciting. I've done everything wow. else. Uh and so it's like it, it, it's so looking for sort of an ideological reasoning of it is why he and Lavrov laugh their way through all these meetings they have, because their objective is just to get the next piece of the puzzle in place to do the things that they want. Uh, and so they have this sort of network of anyone who finds themselves in opposition to whatever, you know, you might call kind of the establishment consensus, you know, on Earth finds a friend, a natural friend there. 
yeah. and uh, and reciprocates. But what's interesting and confusing and just makes the situation, you know, morally more murky and richer is that the traditional far right used to really organize in Ukraine. And this is why you have a lot of disagreement and people getting fights on Twitter and they're like, no, you know, the Ukrainians are the real Nazis. And it's like, we don't actually have to like figure out who's the closest to the Nazis. If you play that game in Germany, the AFD, who's the far right party, right. are like four steps away. Uh, and the liberal party, who are one of the ones in power, are only one step away. Yikes. Mm. So it's sort of a silly game to be like, how many Google hits till I get to the Nazis? Do I want to like throw you in? There is, I think, people who are in the small sense of like the letters in the world illiberal and liberal, you know, cosmopolitan and acosmopolitan, uh, tolerant and intolerant. Uh, and it's sort of more primal than our traditional left-right spectrum That's right. gives us room for, which right at the end of the day is just the mean girl seating chart from the French Revolution. Why we still use this thing is sometimes beyond me. <laughs> Final I mean, thoughts, the fact, that, <laughs> yeah, no, the, the fact that you just slammed the entire left-white paradigm properly <laughs> as the mean girls for the French Revolution. I've got nothing more to add. Nomi, thank you so much for having me. And, um, You're the best. I, thank yeah, you. I, thank, I would love to hear more of this conversation. And yeah, I'll be let's back do this again, again soon. Oh, we're doing it, it every Wednesday. It's okay, Wednesday. guys. We'll make Take this care. happen. Ben, thank you for joining us. It's sticking Pleasure's around a little well. bit later. The conversation just you know, obviously spilled over. So thank you to Ben Dixon. We're doing uh, Solidarity Wednesdays every Wednesday. And Arun Chowdhury, of course, the host of the mini program. Extraordinaire uh, with his scarf on today. Because is it, it's are you actually, it, not only is it a great scarf, this is uh, handmade in the free, by the free peoples who support the EZLN. Look at that. The Peninsula of Mexico. Oh my God. You got Outside it down there or are you? I yeah. And the cat just, perfect oh. timing. It's commercial break. Come on, Golda. Come on, Golda. Golda, what you doing there? Um, so, I mean, this is this is great that you're mentioning this. And I, I do want to, David pulled up this clip. Putin is unlikely to invade Ukraine despite over overheated U.S. rhetoric, says Nina Khrushcheva. Let's play this clip because... Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm convinced by that. Let's get to that in a second, because this is very confusing for the U.S. audience, because you're getting one layer of of frankly propaganda and it that's okay it doesn't mean it's bad it, it's just propaganda no matter what whoever's whoever's throwing the propaganda out is throwing out the propaganda but i think it's hard for folks who are not in these universes to understand what's real to believe and and i'll ask you a question related to that let's play the clip for more we're joined in moscow by nina kushcheva professor of international affairs at the new school co-author of in putin's putin's footsteps searching for the soul of an empire across russia's 11 time zones she's also the author of the lost khrushchev journey into the gulag of the russian mind she's the great granddaughter of the former soviet premier nikita khrushchev as for uh, ukraine it is a little bit of a complicated story because um, it's very unclear exactly what the uh, the Russian idea is to have all these troops on the border with Ukraine. Um, I am not of a school of thought that is especially, I mean, I know that is prevalent in the United States that Putin is going to invade Ukraine. Um, I think it is a bit of an information attack, if, mm. as the United States kept, kept saying, especially that all the media and quoting mm -hmm. Blinken and quoting Victoria Nuland, who is responsible for Russia and Eurasia, saying that 
um, you know, if and so, and we think that they will invade and therefore we'll punish them in this very severe manners. Russians are keeping the troops, from my point of view, um, as they say, uh, to prevent uh, potential uh, Ukraine encouraged, uh, Ukraine government encouraged by the West and uh, the Western military support from trying to take um, the territories annexed in 2014 by force. And I'm actually uh, tending to uh, trust Putin on that because I don't think he wants a, uh, a large bloodshed. I don't think he wants to take Kiev, as many analysts have been, American analysts have been. All right, she backtracked that seriously there at the end. Hardcore, hardcore. Where it was like, they don't want to invade, then all of a sudden they're not going to take Kiev. I agree with her. I don't think they want to run the flag up Kiev. Kiev is close. They have a lot of troops there. It's scary. And you force the enemy to have to protect Kiev to some degree, their main capital city. You know, huge amount of peoples live there. So they don't have as much trouble for whatever they want to do. What they want to do is create a stable country. They have this whole new portion, Crimea. They took it. It went great. Why not? It's just... Here. I'm going to say, I don't know. This is going to sound sort of knee jerk and weird. Maybe it's just not a time for experts. It's a time for Imagineers, right? Like uh, you have someone who's obviously done this a long time. She's very smart, but she is locked in. It's always been yeah. like this and it's never been like this. No, no, this when is exactly quite literally, we just saw him take territory from Ukraine with very little effort, very little pushback. Yeah. And why wouldn't she go the rest of the way? Okay. So I'm so glad you say this because this is exactly what I wanted to lead into, which is I feel like in the U.S. and you're American, you get this. There's there's two trains of thought. On one hand, you have the establishment Democrats in particular, but establishment Republicans too. But let's talk about the Democrats who are like Russia, 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 Russia. But so out of touch with their own people and concerned about like suffocating the working class and staying in power through those means that they don't understand. That's what's keep that's creating the openings for the right to empower essentially Russian interests, whether or not they're in bed with them or not, is a whole other story. Simultaneously, you have the left, who's so effing uh, concerned about the establishment Democrats that there's no way they want to, much of the left doesn't even want to take into to account what's actually happening in the real ge geopolitical world. And so you have this conundrum here in the States in which we shouldn't trust the establishment for winning, let's say, but they there is some truth to what's actually happening on the ground, but because of it, it's, it's like crying. Well, I mean, I think we are we are on the same. We are both towards the center of this argument, but on opposite sides, somewhat. You know, like not opposite sides, but like I'm I'm a RussiaGate skeptic. Like I think they did some influence, but like what are you going to do? Like no more than any other country does to any other country. Uh, I, in oh, some oh, ways, my theory is but this saying every country, that. but it happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, but it's the same thing with like NSA and stuff. It's like, ah, you need to now every country does it. Does it matter? It's like, yeah, it still matters. I don't know. Um, but no, but the, the point I was trying to make, though, is that is that there is an accountability on either side in, in the media sphere. And that I think this is this is the problem. And so I think we find ourselves, even if we're looking and have different agreements on here on the inside of where the media have kind of bracketed this thing. Mm -hmm. and, and and there has been no sort of apology um, for the the misinformation, frankly, around you know from Rachel Maddow's and people like that around how these things were happening, and there's also been no accountability for the actual actions uh, that a lot of the worst actors in the world right. do on a very regular basis, and it's a problem on both sides, and people are really entrenched, and they will not have the conversation uh, in the middle because 
this is one of those situations in which there is something happening in the middle. And she, uh, in this clip, you know, was so quick to sort of be like, all Americans think this. And like, I'm like, you know, as someone who has so many reservations about the narrative that was told, uh, no, I'm here to say, just as a geopolitical observer, that I think they're going in. I think they're going in. And, 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 and then what happens? I mean, if, if, if they go in, obviously it's about oil and gas, but like, then what? Nothing. Uh, then they have a stable water supply uh, in the Crimea and some things that they want. No, but then nothing. And the consequence of nothing happening is just a further degradation or acceleration, if you're excited about it, or whatever it is, of currently the tangled but very fragile web that holds the world together. You know, there will only be so many times that the United States and Europe can make pledges for people and not show up. You know, we were all Georgians. John McCain used to be the one who said we were all people. Then it was Joe Biden. Don't forget that was his job in the Senate. We are all who? We are all there. We're all Afghans. We're all, yeah. you know, and we haven't shown up for people. We are just bailing and we have to have a new recognition of what the world will look like when that continues. And when people no longer trust us necessarily to control the sea lanes, et cetera. You know, yeah. uh, um, Noam Chomsky and uh, P.J. Prashad and some other people are working on a book right now, I think, about kind of the withdrawal, uh, you know, kind of American withdrawal from different places, whether it be Libya, whether it be all the, you know, everywhere, places that, you know, we're both familiar with. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think there's enough, to, there's, it's enough going on that we can actually examine it critically. We used no, no, to be I think inside the fish tank. This is my, I mean, people, the the the, the Russian uh, whatever propaganda folks, <laughs> whoever's like the Syria propaganda universe that's out there. Um, hit me on Libya all the time because my work there. But the the predominant work that I did there was was post Gaddafi collapse and specifically working on with with women who wanted to run for office and were writing the constitution, whatever. And it was, but but the biggest frustration that we had was, okay, so NATO uh, bombed Libya and then did nothing. And then you had a bunch of weapons. And you, facilities. you can actually see what happens in the Literally. absence, right? In I, the this, vacuum. And this yeah. is exactly this is this is our we did this in Iraq, we did this in Libya, we did it in Afghanistan now. You know, when you abandon and and don't have a plan at all, you know, we, the, the Republicans have a plan to never leave and to make money off of it and have security forces, et cetera, et cetera. But the centrist Democrats just have a plan to abandon and civil wars break out um and and it's hard choices it's hard it's it's hard choices right like can you imagine running right now on a program where you're like it's cold in afghanistan and we really should send food oh my god there, uh, the, to be fair uh, let's be, let's explain to people it's the weather is the coldest winter um possibly in history in afghanistan this could people, be the greatest humanitarian disaster ever since they've recorded things as being disasters Yep. Since the branch AIDS collapse, you heard it here first. And they're just yeah. trying to get basic aid and they can't get access to basic aid. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, you're sending food to the Taliban. You're sending legitimacy to the Taliban. It's like, okay. yeah, you are like so. But otherwise, a lot of people are going to die and you kind of messed up leaving. Didn't do a good job. Uh, so because where does moral responsibility happens. begin? Where does geopolitics begin? It is not simple. It's never, you know, it is in technicolor. Forget grayscale, right? It is in bright technicolor. And do you think, I mean, without going down too much of the rabbit hole of Afghanistan, that Biden, the Biden administration wasn't just about how much money was being poured into Afghanistan and being, uh, you know, the Afghani government, like misusing the money and being corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, in their absence, Taliban took hold way faster than probably anybody could predict. But do you have a sense that maybe 
I could be completely wrong that the Biden administration just thought, oh, okay, well, this is where you're going to have another foreign interest who also has interests in the U.S., but we've been covering the costs of stability to swoop in and make it stable. And then they just didn't You know it. what I think? I think there's a combination of things. Uh, like, I do think this way they thought, like, one of the few things they could give progressives, you know, if this was like a progressive issue, you know, and mm -hmm. the forever wars, uh, you know, in the kind of bumper sticker way. Uh, I, but I also think it was pro it's something that Joe Biden wants to leave, I of think. Course. And I think it's a separation between him and his I think, uh, I think and his good. team. I think his team are happy to have some corrupt people. You know what I mean? They've seen a million of these guys from Vietnam through Panama through who, you know, they they know they don't mind a corrupt regime that they can work with. That's not a, that's not a hard thing. That's OK. Uh, but what they do mind is, you know, being seen as cutting and running. So I think it probably took Biden in some situation room meetings being like, you know what? I said we're leaving. You guys figure it out. But you don't think he made the argument that in the case of us leaving, oh, don't worry, China, uh, you know, whoever, Iran's going to come in here and they'll stabilize, probably more China, it's going to stabilize it because they put so much money into the infrastructure and they will lose too much money by not having, quote unquote, stability. I am sure it was mentioned in meetings. I'm sure the countervailing argument was something about, well, then it's China's problem. And won't that be great? Because Afghanistan, when it's somebody's problem, is certainly a nice That's problem for right, someone right. else to have. Um, but no, that's extremely short-sighted as you see what has ha already happened with China on the African continent. They have extended their geopolitical power through extremely traditional sort of Western means. Like, hmm. you know, certainly uh, any American or any UK person should know, you know, going places, bridges, tunnels, motorcycles, mm -hmm. the arteries and veins of the nation. That's how we started the show off. Um, I just want to switch gears just a little bit, just a touch. This has been a very international show, and I'm really happy it has been. Uh, it wasn't the plan, and it worked out. But um, I know you have a lot of feelings about big tech. So was wondering, uh, okay, David, can you play that clip from uh, Huge MSNBC? Fan. Big Love tech, the big yes. Tech. Bigger, bigger the techier, the better. We know the Build Back Better Act, the president's agenda, has been put on pause, at least for the time being. Voting rights uh, has moved to the forefront. We're going to hear from the president and the vice president on that subject in Georgia today. Preview yep. for us, if you will, the next few big battles on Capitol Hill. Well, there's one place of bipartisan congressional agreement, and that's on going after big tech. There's a handful of bills that are working their way through committees towards the floor that could go after the giant tech companies. Uh, there's a place one of the rare places where leaders of both sides of the aisle on these committees that oversee big tech are in agreement with doing these four. These are bills that would make it more difficult for giant tech companies to acquire their rivals. It would open up some of their platforms uh, to competing processes. It would try and crack open the app stores, which sort of Google and Facebook, uh, Google and I'm sorry, Apple exercise a lot of control over the internet. But there's, there's one load of caution, I would say, that Axios is coming up on five years old. And for the entirety of Axios's five years, I've been sitting on MSNBC saying there's a lot of agreement on big tech regulation. We haven't seen anything yet. So don't hold your breath, but the, the, the members who are in favor of these legislations are rushing forward to get it done this year before the August recess before everyone turns their minds to the midterms later this fall. So yes, for five years, people have been saying tech is bad, but with that being said, like it's really bad right now. I do feel like there's a little bit of a sea change. Yeah. And there was a bad rebranding by Facebook for sure. Like, you know, the first, I just recently was like trying to fix something in an account and the first like metaverse thing came up and I was like, oh yeah, mm, this yeah. is just well, three more points everything. down in the polls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, look, I, I think, and we've talked about this on the show before, but I think the real turning point in terms of me thinking that something is going to happen to tech is the kind of voices behind it, which are not mm. good government voices anymore. I mean, or in addition 
to traditional good government voices, you actually have hardened parts of the right. Uh, and so if sort of libertarian kind of types in the Democratic Party, other mm -hmm. folks come together, I think there are starting to be idiosyncratic alliances, even inside the Congress, even inside mm -hmm. the Senate. Uh, of folks, you know, how Rand Paul will always find somebody to come together on something of people speaking out strongly uh, against Facebook, Google, Twitter, and about regulating them. And then certainly Donald Trump has something to prove now, right? So should he be the nominee? This is one of those things that individual matters a little bit. He is definitely going to make it a crowning achievement, the things he is going to do to big tech to punish them for treating but how, him But how can he win without big tech? I mean, how can they win without big tech? I mean, they Because they, really they win if he wins also. That's the secret, you know? Explain that. Uh, because the amount of advertising things, the attention he draws, like everybody does better. Uh, and so, mm -hmm. you know, Donald Trump was a huge benefit, money benefit, right? It's, mm -hmm. I guess it's, so I think... Big tech can afford to lose the argument even every day to Trump to make sure that they're delivering to shareholders every month. Who do you think is in biggest trouble right now? In terms of tech? Definitely Facebook. Yeah. I think because not only does it present the clearest target in, in terms of like the most punchable face award, you know, which Facebook definitely gets. I don't even mean Mark Zuckerberg. We would never on your program suggest violence of any kind. No. I'm just, I was saying, the, I was saying the company. Uh, has that, but also they're so easily splittable, right? You can see yeah. exactly where you want to cut it all off and and, and kind of and really take some kind of antitrust stuff out mm -hmm. for a walk before you start to cover up something that starts to be complicated, like Google, where it's mm -hmm. like the kind of beating heart of Google powers things in effective ways or ineffective ways. You know, if you listen to some AI people, uh, but it, it is sort of there. There's more there there in terms of less just like conglomerating the world together and making something that's too big to fail. That's what Facebook is. So work. how does this make a difference? I mean, you guys, you and I have talked about this. If you remember way back in 2016, when uh, we were sitting in the Sirius XM studios and, you know, more oh, yeah. naive times, uh, we would sit there and, and talk about your cat socks and, and just what the world's going to look like moving forward in a consultantless class. But, but the truth is, is we did talk a lot about how, the industry of campaigning had shifted so much for the left under Bernie because he had really, um, you know, and, and this was built off of Howard Dean, of course, and 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 uh, Barack Obama, but they had really uh, amplified the t used the tools to amplify fundraising through small dollar donations in a way that no one else had, and it seemed like immediately after the Donald Trump world just took it by storm. They they they, they learned the same lessons, but they like really went in a, in a much more sophisticated way with, you know, Cambridge Analytica and others. Do we have a path? Because it feels like we're not where we were in 2016. It's harder to get those clicks. It's harder to get. Uh, yeah, this was the organic there. time, right? I mean, I think you already mentioned even the, the figure, but you, to everyone out there, however many followers you have on Facebook, only 15% of the people on there see your material organically. You have to pay for the rest. And that's mm -hmm. just how it is. So everybody... Everybody out there should know that. Um, <clears throat> because of that, right, this new situation, uh, anytime that you ding Facebook, uh, you know, or Twitter, or they stop with political advertising, it helps incumbents. People have traditional means of getting the message out, and it hurts people who organize online. And so I think one of the things worth campaigning for, especially at a very local level, Right. And I would call this in fun quotations, nationalized Facebook, but is to 
think about requiring internet providers because they are using our bandwidth the same way it's mm -hmm. our airways mm -hmm. to require them to re give classifieds as a public service the same way c-span is a public service mm -hmm. on the airwaves like something that's the parts of facebook that we actually need and it's the groups I can tell you that is the part of that is the wholesome part what of Facebook. Everyone wants to leave Facebook, but stays because they're like their kid. A group is not a page. A group is just a community of people. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it's like people in a neighborhood around a schools or big one. Some of them around hating groups of people. <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure this, you know, Facebook yeah. is still a horrible place full of all kinds of things, all kinds of things, but it's a community you can't replicate. And so you stay on Facebook and then get, bombarded with advertising and all the mm -hmm. other things that Facebook is doing, get your data scraped, whatever's happening to you on there. That's why it's happening to you. And I know that's why I probably wouldn't leave Facebook. I talk about it all the time. Yep. Uh, so this, so we, we, it's very simple. This is not like a huge computer programming challenge for someone. It actually is a political issue, right? Mm -hmm. Is there, is there a public utility need in being able to organize online so that people can have fundraisers for, the fire departments that we don't fund other ways. And so people can fund even grassroots candidates for local office. Right, right. And not just right candidates for local office. Yeah. Uh, fascinating conversation is always a run. A run, Chowdhury is of course, the host of the committee program and doing all things amazing abroad, uh, fighting for the left against the far right that is uh, literally taking over. Just just uh, your weekly yeah. reminder that they're coming for us and we gotta do something. Get your act together, go run for office. That's <laughs> do true. Do what you can, do what you can. You don't have to be some sort of like- Be a campaign figure. manager. Everyone wants to run for office. Want, like aspire to be a campaign manager. I think it's a better thing to aspire to be. We need both. A run, we, I, you know, I, I love everyone running for Congress, but like run for school board, run yeah, for town council. Yeah, yeah. It's achievable. You don't have to raise a million dollars. And that's where the right wing is really doing it. I am, David is going to kill me by the end of this because I keep saying the thing, same thing over and over. I'm going to be a broken record. Run, run for something and find someone to run your campaign or vice versa. Find a great candidate. We got to get like, it's just, there's no infrastructure. The Democratic Party has just been like asleep at the wheel. Out to and repeating lunch. the message is okay. Repeating the message is okay, but just don't repeat it in the same way every time. You know, one time you're saying it casually to David, like, you know what I was saying before, people running for office, then one time it's right down the hatch, you know, one time it's to yeah. a guest. And that way you won't have, you don't have listener fatigue. I think I've been doing that. I feel like I'm on. Good, okay. good, 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 good. David, David, do you want to chime in? Do I, do, has that been happening? Is that, is that how we've been? I mean, a run's the expert. Decent, he said. Repeat, but in different voice. You have, <laughs> okay, you have five voice different voice. voices as a public opinion. Yeah. I don't know what my five different... Okay, I do. I know I do. I have... No, no, they're all the same. You you can speak to... You can uh, have an actual conversation in real life. God forbid. Okay. You can do an interview. You can do a press conference. You can do uh -huh. uh, a direct-to-camera yeah. down the hatch. Yeah. Or you can do a speech. What's down all the hatch for folks who don't know what that means? Oh, you know, well, uh, where you... We begin bombing Russia in five minutes, whatever Reagan said when he was just warming up, right? You know, you're in the Oval Office, you're looking right down, right down the barrel of the camera. And then there's like the off the record one. That's like the yeah, accidental yeah, that's off the, the casual. Record. That's the casual. That, that's sort of what we added in 2008, right? It was like so you used to have four ways to talk to the public uh, uh, in audiovisual. Now you have five. That's measurably better, right? That is a huge percentage better when you add that over of two years of messaging. What about like? Twitter and 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 Facebook and all that. What's 
Is that the sixth way or is that different? That is, I mean, that's not the actual person speaking. That's just, I think, replicating what they've already done. Okay, fair enough. I'm yeah. liking this. All right, so uh, hey guys, think about running for office. <laughs> Go run for school board. <laughs> Google it for five minutes. Get hyped up. Figure out who That's you think is the, most, the best person to organize your campaign. Look into it. Like, who's the most organized person you know who cares about the issues? They're your campaign manager. And then and, sign and up. And one last thing that I would say yeah. about that is ask a busy person for help because busy people mm. are busy because they do things. Someone yeah. who is free to help you is free for an important reason. They mm. don't do things. Damn, 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 damn. That was like some therapy right there for me. Awesome. Uh, Arun Chadri, always a pleasure. Yeah. Say hi to everyone for me. Love the desk setup. You thank look very you, busy. I broke my mouse. I just saw you grab your mouse. I broke my mouse yesterday. I just had to order a new one. Not good. Oh, All right. You the best. Thank you. And to everybody else, if you are not already, please join us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. That is how we run the trains. I don't really like saying run the trains. There's got to be something else. There's got to be another term. That is how shit gets done. You know, we make the show happen from wherever I am, from wherever everybody else is runs in Germany, Ben's in in uh and he's in Atlanta, in Georgia, and I'm in Puerto Rico or I'm at home or whatever, but mainly here right now that's where I'm doing it. Uh so this happens because we've got amazing patrons, incredible patrons. We have the, I'm, I'm just going to say it. We got the best patrons. We've got the best patrons. Bob B is a new patron. DD Ruff Thank you so much. Subscribe to us on Twitch. You can join us on Twitch too. Uh, Marty C59 cheered. Thank you so much, Marty. Uh, I'm going to, this is Jodel Law with Jodel Law. I think that's it. Also, thank you so much. And Pagan Communist has been a subscriber for over seven months. want to give you a shout out. Thank you to everybody. If you are already not subscribed to us on YouTube, on Twitch, please do so. If you can do all of them, you know, thank you. It's like it's it's we're fighting the algorithm, so we got to do what we can. Please join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Become a patron if you can. It keeps us going. And in the meantime, we will see you on Friday for Fem Friday and stay in solidarity. The Nomi Key Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melting pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Meeky Show.